Welcome to the Chapter 49 podcast. We are recording this on September 10th, 2021. I want to welcome you to our podcast. It's a weekly podcast, as best as we can make it weekly, and most weeks it is. And uh, I am Larry Landon. I'm a retiree and a volunteer working in communications with NTEU Chapter 49. And we welcome you, and we welcome also our chapter president, Duncan Giles, our regular uh, uh, cohort on this particular program. Great to have you back, Duncan. Good to be here, Larry. And those of you watching on video can see we have a guest this week, and our guest is Jim Bailey. Jim Bailey is the executive vice president for the National Treasury Employees Union on the on the national level. In fact, uh, he is second in command, the only person in the NTEU organization that is higher than Jim Bailey would be our national president, Tony Reardon. So, Jim Bailey, thank you for carving out time and a busy schedule to be with us today. My pleasure, gentlemen. Well, we have plenty to talk about. And we plan on carving out the first part of this podcast. And by the way, normally it's 30 minutes. This may go over that. We have so much to talk about. But uh, the buzz right now in the entire federal employee sector is the announcement made by President Joe Biden yesterday, the executive order that was issued after the announcement uh, mandating vaccination for federal employees. Uh, There's a lot we do know. There's an awful lot we don't know. But I'm going to ask Jim Bailey to start the discussion because, Mr. Bailey, you are an attorney. And one question Duncan and I have been receiving on a regular basis just in the last several hours, how does the president of the United States have the legal authority to do this? So if you could enlighten us on on that issue, we would appreciate it. Well, um, the president, under his authority under Title V of um, the U.S. Code, is effectively sort of the boss of the federal workforce. Um, if you look at the, the the terminology of the executive order, it references certain sections in Title V that um, effectively give the president that authority. And it also talks about um, what an agency is and who's covered. There's been some um, questions about whether the Postal Service is covered by this. And the answer is no, because the president doesn't have direct line or personnel authority over the U.S. Postal Service. They're run by a uh, independent board of governors. Um, you know, a couple of the questions uh, we sort of uh, anticipated that this might be coming um, uh, a vaccine mandate. Um, if you look at especially as those attestation numbers were coming in um, under the testing protocols, uh, there were a huge number of uh, employees that the, IR, or the IRS in particular, I guess, but um, the federal government of the different agencies were going to have to test either once or twice a week. Um, when you started looking at the logistics of that, um, boy, you know, seeing a vaccine, a vaccine mandate down the road. Um, well, you could see it. Let's just put it that way. Um as far as so that's where the president's authority comes from. You know, one of the questions in this is always, well, OK, what about individual rights and liberties? Right. We all none of us like to be told what to do. Um, none of us like to be told we have to get a, a shot. Um, and so, you know, the, the legal issues that come up around that are, uh, first of all, do I have any constitutional rights? Right. Do I have any due process rights, rights to liberty or you know, the integrity of my own body. 
Um, you know, this, uh, as far as vaccine mandates go, um, there was a Supreme Court decision in uh, 1905 called Jacobson versus Massachusetts, where um, somebody challenged a vaccine mandate um, in the state of Massachusetts, and it went up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court um, rejected that challenge then and said, you know, states have the, the right to do it. Um, since that time, there's been a number of uh, other challenges to different um, school vaccine mandates, and um, they've, they've all been rejected by the courts. Um, the, the, the current, I guess, lead case, if you will, is on challenging um, a vaccine mandate is a case right out of your state of Indiana. Um, it's that Claussen case that you've, everybody is probably pretty familiar with, um, that um, uh, where an injunction was denied by uh, the district court. Uh, the Seventh Circuit affirmed that, went up to the Supreme Court, and um, the newest justice, um, Justice Barrett, um, rejected that. So, um, and, and the, the two main claims there were uh, an individ, uh, it, a vaccine mandate violates my right to um, liberty under the 14th Amendment. And also there was a, a religious, a free exercise of religion claim there. Um, so courts have, uh, when it comes to constitutional challenges, courts have pretty much come down on the side of the government when it comes to um, vaccine mandates um, in the, when it gets into the, uh, you know, the public health arena. Um, the next area we, of course, look at as a labor organization is, well, do uh, agencies as employers have the right to mandate um, vaccines? And um, there are, it's pretty well settled. There's some Federal Labor Relations Authority decisions on this that basically say agencies have the right, as part of their right to determine internal security practices, to um, A, mandate testing, and B, mandate vaccines. Um, there's there's um, a couple of key cases that have come up on that, and, and, and that's pretty much settled. I guess the third area you could sort of look at, um, I'm a lawyer, um, and you look at it as an employment lawyer. Well, what about, um, are there any personnel laws? Are there any discrimination laws that might come into play here? Um, and the EEOC, has uh, weighed in on this um, as early as uh, last December, um, when a vaccine um, vaccines were first being um, developed and and and, and coming out, um, and their guidance is pretty clear that they recognize that um, um, employers have the right to mandate vaccines with two major exceptions. If you have um, somebody has an underlying medical condition that keeps them, prevents them from being vaccinated. Uh, agencies have to reasonably accommodate um, that condition, uh, find some sort of accommodations for them. And we, of course, can talk about what those might be. Uh, there's a similar um, exception for those who have so-called sincerely held religious beliefs. Um, if you have a sincerely held religious belief that um, precludes you from being vaccinated, um, it's not an absolute protection against the vaccine mandate, but agencies must try to accommodate those beliefs. So that's sort of the, the state of the law on this. Um, go ahead. Larry. Yeah, we're we're going to explore some of that you, you've already mentioned. But before I turn this over to Duncan uh, to ask you some questions and discuss this, I think the next part of all this is, is, is the fact that this executive order is an outline. It, it gives us some idea what is going to happen. It does not provide 
much detail. I assume some of that will be coming from the government, Office of Personnel Management, other government agencies to give the details uh, to people uh, in the federal government as to how this is all going to work, a lot of what you've outlined here before. So I guess the question I would ask you, as best you can determine it now, based on the executive order and what we know, what will the government be telling us about how this will work, and what areas will the union have the opportunity to negotiate with the management of the various agencies, such as IRS, as this rolls out? Yes, the details will be forthcoming from this outfit called the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force. I think I have that name right. But basically, it consists of representatives of the Office of Management and Bus Budget, uh, Office of Personnel Management, and um, uh, members of the White House staff. Um, I am actually, in a couple of hours, going to be on a conference call with um, that group, um, along with representatives of other unions and representatives of NTU, where we're going to be uh, asking a lot of these questions and probably um, I expect hearing more details. Uh, what are some of those questions? And these would also be areas that we would, um, you know, bargain. Um, and, and namely, um, you know, is that November 22nd date, you know, a hard date? Is there any slippage on that? You know, what type of proof uh, of vaccination might be required? What kind of privacy protocols are going to be in place to protect, um, you know, personal information, including um, proof of vaccination? Um, we'll probably talk about uh, the accommodation um, process and what kind of process should agencies have in place to accommodate those with medical and religious objections. Um, we will maybe I expect we'll be talking about um, vaccine options. Um, does it have to be Pfizer? Uh, can it be Moderna? You know, what about J&J? Um, we will probably, uh, you know, there's already provisions in place, guidelines in place uh, that require agencies to give uh, employees time on the clock to get vaccinated, time to travel to a vac get vaccinated, um, recovery time up to two days. We'll talk about making those permanent, keeping those in place. Um, we'll probably be talking about um, a mask, you know, the mask mandates and how long and do those stay in place um, once um, employees have been vaccinated. Uh, I imagine that will be impacted by um, the numbers, um, just the positive tests, um, those types of things. But we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about that. Um, you know, will uh, the testing protocols that were implemented previously, will those remain in place? So a whole host of issues, but those are those are a few of them. And I'll turn this over to our chapter president, Duncan Giles. Yeah, I first off, thank you, Jim, for such great in-depth explanation, because this is the information that employees want to know. And what we're hearing, you know, what I hear on the ground and I'm sure what national office is hearing and I'm sure every chapter across the country, well, they can't make me an NTU ought to stop it. And folks need to realize, first off, as Jim said, this is settled law. NTU will fight anything that is a unjust decision, unjust law, not based in law, things of that nature. But right now, we have seen no legal basis to be able to protest this mandate if we so, if National NTU so desired to do so. So people who are getting upset with NTU over this I'm sorry, but that's misdirected. 
you know, I think employees need to know this because we have urged, you know, everybody at National NTU, you know, myself as a chapter president, and I'm sure many other chapter leaders out there have absolutely endorsed and uh, told people to please get vaccinated, especially because of this Delta variant. And we just need to, you know, realize there are some things that the union can assist with, as Jim mentioned, the impact and implementation of the issues surrounding this. But to say, okay, we don't like this edict, therefore NTU must fight it because we don't like it is unfortunately not something that we can legally do as much as we might like to do so. I think he's looking for a reaction from you, Jim. Well, that, that was the pregnant pause there. Okay. Uh, let me <laughs> um, I'm always looking well, for a reaction um, from think, Jim. Usually uh, it's a smack I, in I the think, head. I think Duncan's absolutely right. And but I'll, let me layer this on top of that. I, you know, this, the, the, the testing protocols and now the vaccine mandate is, um, presents a real challenge for NTU as an organization. And it's not unlike um, other issues that we've had to deal with before when it comes to the tension between individual rights and, um, you know, what's in the interests of our members as a whole. Uh, and, you know, as Tony has said repeatedly in his messages, um, I mean, as Duncan says, the, the law is pretty settled in this area, um, you know, that, that the employer has the right to do it. Um, this is a um, a divisive issue, uh, a, you know, a potentially divisive issue for this union, because when you look at our membership, um, you know, if you look at society at large right now, um, it's it's somewhat polarized. I mean, you have folks across the political spectrum. Um, our membership is no different than that. Um, they come down all over across the board on on, on this particular issue. Um, what, you know, two things, you know, we need to keep in mind, I think. And, and number one is, um, you know, the health and safety of our members is um, our number one concern. And, you know, sometimes, you know, our individual desire, you know, our individual rights, this is always a tension in constitutional law, too. And what, you know, where does the right, your right to your individual rights end? And the rights of, you know, the, the larger collective interests take precedence. Um, you know, that's an issue that is, is presented by this vaccine mandate. It was presented by the, the testing, too. Um, but the one thing, you know, I would like our, our members to keep in mind is, you know, as divisive as this issue may be, you know, we need to keep in mind that we have a lot more in common um, and we accomplish a lot more together Um uh, than we do, uh, you know, individually. And so notwithstanding the different opinions about this particular issue, we need to keep focused on the fact that, you know, we're a union um, and we have a lot that we can do together. And we shouldn't let, I mean, this is a tough time for us. It's a tough time for the country, but we shouldn't let this issue divide us, um, split us up. Um, let's, and that's why we as a union have focused on the fact that, you know, okay, if the government as an employer has the right to do this, all right, let's just accept that fact as reality and let's start dealing with the details. 
let's start, let's move on as, as a union and, and do it together. Speaking of the details, uh, Jim, I, I think that uh, the one question Duncan and I have received more than any other deals with this reasonable accommodation for religious reasons. Uh, you know, the question has come up, what is a religious reason? How would, if, for instance, uh, an IRS employee would say, I have a religious objection to taking the vaccination, uh, how will the agency look at that? How will the agency evaluate that? What's the burden on the employee? We have some uh, idea what the law says on this. So can you uh, talk about that a little bit as far as what we know in that regard? Yes. Well, the mechanics or the, the process of uh, an employee voicing um, their religious objection to being vaccinated is something we're going to need to still work out. That's one of those details. Um, as far as the law goes, the EEOC guidance that I'd referenced earlier speaks to this. Um, you know, the law says you must accommodate sincerely uh, held religious beliefs. Um, the EEOC, and I think this is wise advice, counsels agencies against delving into or questioning whether that religious belief is sincerely held. Uh, not a, that's not a, a good area for employers to get into, questioning somebody's subjective belief. Um, their advice is and their, their guidance is, you know, if somebody voices a sincerely held religious belief, they say, I sincerely believe this, accept that and focus on the accommodation piece. What can be done to then accommodate um, that, that, that objection to a vaccine? Now, the law, if you read it closely, um, you know, an agency's accommodation obligations as far as sincerely held religious beliefs go is not as strong or as high as it is for um, employees with medical conditions. Exactly. So that's something that's going to remain to be seen is how far agencies, including the IRS, are willing to go with accommodating those beliefs. But accommodations could include something like, um, for example, I, I can't be, you know, my, my religion keeps me from being vaccinated. Okay. Um, can we provide that person um, a telework option? Is, do they have, can we give them portable work or do they have portable work where they're not interacting with their coworkers, where, you know, their unvaccinated status is not going to present a, a, a threat or a risk to, to their colleagues. Um, so that, those are the kinds of issues I think that we'll get into in, in that area as this, as this rolls out. So what I'm hearing you say, Jim, is that there's a lot to be determined here and that uh, we as a chapter and you as the National Union will be informing everyone as to how the, this guidance moves along. And uh, we'll, we'll be letting people know, Duncan, uh, let's, let's get one more shot at this. Anything you want to ask, uh, Jim, before we move on to another subject? Um, I, you know, again, just reinforcing that we're looking at this legally in every different way, you know, whether, whether they can do the vaccine mandate. Yes, they can. We've looked at this backwards and forwards. And, you know, we're going to look at, as you said, Jim, the accommodations and what people need to keep in mind are a couple of things. First off, you know, I, I think in what I've been hearing from some scuttlebutt, sincerely held belief is going to be, like you said, it's not a smart area for them to delve into, but I do think that they're going to be, you know, if people have had this sincerely held belief since, uh, you know, 930 yesterday, 
uh, there could be some issues with that one. And like you said, the bar is lowered and it has to be a reasonable accommodation for the government. And that's that's something I think, too. And, and employees who have been vaccinated are saying, OK, so I have to come into the office once the evacuation order is lifted. But the people who are unvaccinated don't. I mean, there there are a whole lot of moving parts to this that are still going to have to be worked out. And if you could talk a little bit about those as well. Um, absolutely. I mean, there are challenges on, on, on multiple levels. Um, you know, there's just, uh, um, the, you know, just basic rules of sense of fairness and, you know, equity. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you, you want to treat people to some extent uniformly, but, you know, there, you, we also have to recognize those, those individual issues. And I mean, the individual objections, the individual people's individual conditions. And um, that's the thing we're going to have to navigate. Um, I mean, we'll have you know, some general procedures laid out, but um, the devil is always in the details, as they say. And it's going to be, you know, it's going to be in the application of those procedures. That's that's where the tough work is going to be done. That's where Duncan's going to be very busy. Um, because yeah, I don't have enough that, work anyway. <laughs> <laughs> that, that all of that stuff gets done at the at the job level at the work site. Um, so it, it it will be a challenge, but um, you know NTU is up to the challenge. We we always have been. Yep. Before we move on to something else, uh, Jim, anything you want to say in closing on this issue of vaccinations, which is creating so much conversation in all the workplaces and every place people gather virtually or in person at the IRS and other agencies. Any final comment before we move on? Just, you know, sort of reemphasize what I I said earlier, and that is, you know, look, let's all recognize that this is, you know, this is a real challenge, just like the the pandemic is for all of us. But, you know, if we hang in there together, uh, we stick together on this, um, we respect each other's different opinions on this, um, we're going to get through it. And, um, you know, that I'll just leave it at that. I want to move on to another issue and, and something you and Duncan both were involved with from beginning to end. That's the bargaining over the national agreement. Duncan and I have talked about this multiple times on our podcast, but you have a perspective of leading the entire bargaining team. Uh, I know that you went into to this, uh, this, bar, this bargaining session for the national agreement and there were some rough waters at the beginning, but it seemed that things moved along once you were able to finally meet in person once the COVID situation had, had changed a bit. Uh, I would like you to just take a f- couple of minutes and, and take us through the whole process that, as you saw it, leading the uh, NTEU delegation in these talks. Yeah, well, as, as you mentioned, um, we didn't get off to a, a fast start. Um, with, with, with the bargaining, um, part of that was COVID related. I mean, right at the outset, we had, we delayed the bargaining because we were hoping that, um, the pandemic, the numbers would come down and we would be able to meet face to face. Um, we weren't able to do that, but we didn't want to wait, um, because the agreement was, uh, coming up on an expiration. So, you know, we started off doing the, you know, the virtual bargaining. That is necessarily limiting. So that was certainly one reason we got off to a a slow start. The second reason, though, um, is, and, you know, uh, there are probably IRS, maybe IRS executives listening to this, but it's it's certainly my view. 
They needed, when I say they, the IRS needed to figure out what they wanted from this, what their priorities were. And we had a conversation with them, uh, you know, basically saying, what do you want out of this? Because this is what we wanted, what we want. Here are our top priorities. And once we did that and then started focusing on working on those priorities, things started to fall into place. Um, you know, we identified, um, I, I think, our, our, our big issues were um, we wanted to make sure that our representatives had time to represent, to provide the representation that we're obligated to provide to our uh, to employees. We wanted um, we wanted to uh, we needed to do some work on awards. We wanted to increase funding there. Um, we wanted to expand telework because telework had the pandemic had proven that a lot of these jobs can be performed remotely, and we really needed to expand the number of occupations that were eligible for frequent telework. Um, so those were sort of our big three. Um, their number one, as it turned out, was trying to get people on board faster. And so it was Article 13. It was the promotions. It was the, pl the placement article. And once we figured that out, you know, and started working on those things, um, we were able to really uh, move it forward much more quickly. Duncan, I'm going to give you a chance to, to chime in on this and talk to Jim about the talks that you were involved with as well. Yeah, I, I just want to say that uh, for folks who, you know, as see the agreement and see this some big, you know, document, how the sausage gets made can be extremely tedious and painful. Um, but Jim, as our chairperson, Ken Moffat as our chief spokesperson, and Doreen Greenwald, all three of those from National NTU, did a fantastic job of leading the team. Uh, the other chapter presidents, first and foremost, Lori McCann from up in Chicago, who was also the chapter president with me, who was there during the entire time, did a wonderful job of basically bringing the employees' frontline concerns to these executives at the IRS to make them understand why some things, you know, are the way they are, why they're not working, what they need to do to improve it. And Jim, Ken, and Doreen would do a great job of uh, bringing that home in terms that they could understand. So it, you know, they wouldn't see it as something that's, you know, a gotcha thing. It's like, this is best for all of us. And this was, I've been involved in these national negotiations for a long time. And this was by far at the end. It, it started out, as Jim said, slowly. Um, it was slower than I run the 100-yard dash, and that's pretty freaking slow. Um, but by the end, you know, we didn't have to do the full mediation. We didn't have to go to fact-finding. Uh, that's unheard of in our national agreements because, as Jim said, they, you know, they the the top folks met and said, "What are your priorities? Let's work on each other's priorities, and let the rest fall into place." And that's exactly what happened. So, I you know I hate to I hate to praise Jim in front of him, but uh, <laughs> you know they he Ken and Doreen uh, did just a wonderful job, and the chapter presidents, especially Lori, did a wonderful job in making uh, this contract that is going to go into effect October first just a really great. Uh, contract for employees. And uh, well, Larry, Jim, go ahead, please, Jim. If I may, let me uh, return the favor. Um, you know, 
we, Laurie, Ken, and or, I mean, Doreen, Ken, and I, you know, we're, we may be the spokespersons, but the, the real meat of the team are, are our chapter leaders, our chapter presidents who bring the actual experience and, and the wisdom of our members, um, the frontline employees to the table, because they're the folks who provide all of the examples um, and the, um, you know, the reasons, the why behind what our positions are at the table. And they also provide a lot of great insights. Um, I won't get into all the details on this, but Duncan will remember one morning when I came in after having a, a, a pre-bargaining discussion with um, the two IRS spokespersons, and I was more than a little upset um, because they had <laughs> added a little wrinkle late the night before. To, um, they wanted they put something in a proposal they gave us that we hadn't talked about. And, um, you know, I was wrestling with, you know, should we just blow this whole thing up over something like this? And Duncan happened to be in the room and he was the cooler head. And he said, well, what if we try this? And it was brilliant. It was just this moment of insight where it was like, you know, that's it. Um, and we discussed it with the rest of the team and went back to them and, and got over that. hump. So that's, you know, that's the I think that just illustrates the value of, of, of the team. That's why we call it a bargaining team, because, you know, the, everybody has different um, ideas and thoughts and experiences that they bring to bear. And then you get when you do all that and you do it right, you get you get the product that we've got with this, with what I think is an excellent term agreement. Of course, Jim, you realize you just called uh, Duncan brilliant. He's never going to let you forget that. <laughs> I, I think that was a slip of the tongue. And, yeah, that was, you know, my once a decade uh, brilliant thing. So. I think he's okay in that regard. It's 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 recorded too, Duncan. <laughs> it's on the record, but but one last thing on the contract: it is uh, scheduled to go in, into effect on October first. You still are going through a treasury review. Any concerns uh, about any problems there? I don't have any. Um, as 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 Larry said, it's it's what it's this period that the law requires. It's agency head review. The it goes up to Department of Treasury. They look at the agreement. Um, and their role is to basically determine if there's anything contrary to law. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they come back and nitpick some wording um, and some particular provisions. We have a history of being able to just work out some different language without, you know, gutting the actual provision itself. So uh, not, no real concerns there. Larry. Well, let's move on to uh, an issue that we all know about and deal with every year. It's the budget. I went to work for IRS in 1983. I could count on one hand the number of times a budget was actually done by October 1st. It's we get continuing resolutions. The Congress uh, and the president uh, have to keep moving and, and going and, and trying to figure out how to finalize the budget. And and it's sometimes we don't know what the agency budget will be until we're months into the fiscal year. Not the best way to run a railroad. Uh, so it looks like we have another continuing resolution. Um, your thoughts on that and uh, how people who are members of NTEU can impact that process? Well, uh, first of all, I, you know, yeah, you're right, it, it, Larry. It's becoming an annual drill. I, I can't remember the last time we had a budget by um, October 1st. Um, I, you know, we'll see a, at least a short-term CR. Um, I think ultimately a, a, a budget agreement will be reached. Um, I don't think either party uh, wants to see a shutdown. I don't think that will happen. 
Um, how can um, uh, members impact the process? Well, a key part uh, of the budget is going to be um, this infrastructure package, and um, which includes some significant funding increases for uh, the IRS. And I encourage every single one of our members to go to the NCU website, um, look at the take action button on there and weigh in with your senators and your member of Congress on how important it is for uh, Congress to give um, the IRS the funding um, it needs to effectively uh, administer the tax code. And make sure you're following the rules. You do it on your own time, your own equipment, your own software. But, yes, that's a very easy-to-use uh, NTEU tool uh, to contact your members of uh, your member of Congress and your two senators. Duncan, anything you want to weigh in here? Yeah. Like, as Jim said, it's very easy to do uh, to let them know. And they do record those. And when I say it's very easy to do, you can basically use the form letter that they have. You can change it if you want to. You don't need to. And it's boom, send it off via email and you're done. Takes just a couple of moments. I, I am almost as optimistic as Jim is that there won't be a shutdown. I, I would hope that there won't be. Um, there will be a continuing, there has to be a continuing resolution because there's no way in you know 21 days and three weeks that they're going to be able to finalize this uh and pass it so there there will have to be a continuing resolution as there unfortunately always has been for the last couple of decades but i just want to make sure and i hope that cooler heads prevail and again this is where folks can come in and you know let your uh congress people let your senators know you know, that you do want them to pass a budget that you don't want a government shutdown because it, it can happen. It, you know, I, we've all seen dumb things happen in the past and we don't want that to happen again. Well, we've most of us uh, have been through government shutdowns, some worse than others, but none are good. And we do want to avoid that. And, and Jim, there's something else that can also impact uh, government spending. Luckily, we've never had to go through this because it, the economists tell us this would be a catastrophic event if we ever had a situation where the debt ceiling was not raised as it should be. And if the debt ceiling is not raised and the government can't pay its bills based on what's already been spent, uh, we've already budgeted this, the, money, you know, what, the money's been spent as a paying the bill uh, that comes later. Uh, the debt ceiling uh, is something that, uh, how should I put this? Uh, certain members of Congress like to play chicken with this. I think that's the way Duncan likes to describe it. Uh, tell us the difference between not getting the budget done on time, government shutdown, versus the debt ceiling. Both of them are facing us right now. Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right, Larry. There are certain um, um, members of Congress, depending on the situation, who like to use uh, the debt ceiling as leverage to get uh, what they want in the budget negotiation process. Um, you know, the debt ceiling is really, that's money that has, um, is not being um, appropriated or it's not a debate about money that will be spent. It's about paying the debt, paying the interest really on the bonds that fund money that has already 
been spent. Um, so, you know, if the debt ceiling isn't raised, that doesn't necessarily mean an automatic government shutdown. What that means is the government at some point after it draws on its reserves can no longer pay the interest due on the debt. Um, that, um, as you noted, and many economists say has catastrophic consequences for the economy um, because, and, and, um, and, and, the uh, the U.S.'s ability to borrow in the future, because um, it you know it impacts the, the the government's full faith and credit as a you know as a as a as a borrower um, and as a as an institution. And so um, that's I mean I'm no economist, but I you know I haven't seen the Congress in, in the 36 years I've worked for MTU. I've never the debt ceilings always come up, you know, we've hit that at different points. Congress has always ultimately agreed to raise the debt ceiling because in the end, nobody wants to see what happens if they don't. Any uh, thoughts on the debt ceiling, Duncan? Yeah, like I like you described, I do see it's a game of chicken. And, you know, we're, we're going through that dance right now. Uh, Secretary of the Treasury Yellen has said that it'll probably be sometime next month when that debt ceiling will hit that. And, you know, every economist that I've ever read has said if that would happen to come to pass, that the impact on the stock market and things of that nature, as Jim said, the, uh, you know, basically the full face of the U.S. government to pay its bills would stop. The last time this happened and they played chicken too close, Moody downgraded our credit rating. And people say, well, what's the big deal about that? The big deal about that is it costs more money for the U.S. to borrow, and so our, it increases the cost. It actually makes the debt go up, so it's counterproductive. So I just hope cooler heads prevail quickly on that one. One last thing I want to talk about, and I'll start and let the, the two of you chime in as well. We're recording this, and we'll hopefully post it later in the day on on September the 10th, 2021, which is tomorrow is the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks in, in, uh, in 2001. And I think we all remember where we were. I was working for IRS at the time trying to prepare to teach a corporate tax law class internally and toll-free and was uh, having discussions with uh, one of the training people about how to plan that class. And we kept getting updates as we were sitting there in this room, this uh, conference room doing this, about the first attack on, on the Trade Center, the second attack on the Trade Center, the attack on the Pentagon. And, of course, we all were told to go home right around midday because nobody knew what was coming next. We all came back to work the next day. And I'll say most people came back to work. Uh, you know, they weren't afraid. They felt it was time to go back and do the government's business, the people's business. And I was always proud of my coworkers and the people I knew because we went right back in that toll-free center and continued to serve the public that next day. Uh, and I have a lot of other memories that I won't share at this moment, but uh, I'm going to ask Duncan Giles what you remember about September 11th, uh, 2001. I was vice president of Chapter 49 at the time, uh, president-elect, and I you know, remember walking into the office and all of a sudden I start getting emails about this happening. I go up to our district director's office and the assistant to the district director, who I'm not going to mention at this time, was very bullheaded about the whole thing. Didn't want to shut the 
you know, they didn't want to shut the district down, the state of Indiana down, didn't want to tell people to go home. And I'm having a heated discussion with him while things are going on in the background and finally got them convinced um, to, you know, basically shut down the IRS offices in the state of Indiana for the potential safety of employees. And the discussions did get quite heated. Um, But in the end, uh, Jim Rogers, who was our district director at the time, and I were making phone calls to the different posts of duties to tell them if they hadn't already shut down and get out. Some of the business units had already made that decision prior to us while we were having those discussions. But I will you know, never forget just trying to make sure that we're getting our employees to safety. And like you, I was very proud of our folks the next day coming in and saying, you know what, we're not going to be intimidated by this. We're not going to be, you know, we're, we're wary, but we're going to come in and we're going to do what we need to do because this is the job that the American people expect of us. So, Jim Bailey, uh, your thoughts on the 20th anniversary of 9-11? Well, I, I, yeah, we, we all have our memories of that. I distinctly remember that. Um, I was supposed to be in New Orleans at the time. We were having a fall training conference for our IRS chapter leaders at the time. Uh, I had an important arbitration hearing that week, and so I did not go to that conference. Um, so um, our staff who went to that conference, I mean, you remember the John Candy movie, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. It was literally trains and automobiles for them to try to get back. I remember that. Um, the other thing, though, that I, I really, you know, I think about when I, I think about 9-11 is, um, first of all, the impact um, that it had on our members and our, our, our chapters that represented uh, represent employees, federal employees in um, downtown Manhattan, um, chapter 47 of the IRS chapter. And then we have a chapter, a CBP chapter 183, um, who actually had um, members who worked in um, the World Trade Center. And, you know, it's had a lasting impact on them um, and their lives. And then um, the other thing I really think about is, all that it engendered in terms of um, creating a, a new federal agency, a new department, Department of Homeland Security, which had a big impact on um, our, our members who were at the U.S. Customs Service, who are now at um, part of um, this new agency. It's 17 years old now, but Customs and Border Protection. Um, and then there was just the impact on um, laws in general, um, which took on more of a, a national security orientation, which has impacted the work we do. So, uh, boy, the, the, the scope of it, just from the impact on individuals' lives to um, the, the laws we work with is, is just, um, well, it, it'll go on for a long, long time. I'm going to say, give you a quick story before we wrap this up. I worked the toll-free lines uh, for many years at IRS, and several months after 9-11, I received a call from a nurse who needed some help on some, some tax issues. turns out that she was uh, working in Florida. When 9-11 happened, she dropped her job, told her bosses, I have to go to New York. Someone will need me. She went to the site. Of, of the World Trade Center, uh, where the, the towers had gone down and worked, didn't even know she would have a job when she came back. Now, it turns out that her employer did take her back, but she spent weeks not being paid anything, 
helping out at the site and volunteered her time to do that. There are a lot of uh, federal public employees who did that. This is a nurse who just dropped everything and felt that she was needed. And I asked her, I I actually told her, I said, I think a lot of people, uh, I can speak for a lot of people to thank you for what you did. I'm sure it was, what you did was was almost heroic. And she, she told me this, and I'll never forget it. She goes, every hour I worked on that site, I spent 20 minutes working, 20 minutes regurgitating at what I had seen, 20 minutes recovering. And then I went back to work, and she did that for hours. You know, that's that's a kind of story you hear about America, uh, about people who are nurses, civil servants who stepped up. And don't forget, we lost an IRS employee in one of those Trade Center buildings in the 9-11 attacks, and that's, that's something we'll never forget. Um, on that note, I, I, uh, for, uh, I don't know what else to say, except I want to thank, uh, Jim Bailey for joining us, Jim. Uh, you, I know you're a busy man and particularly in, in this, this, this date and time, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to folks. I think you've given us a lot of good information, uh, about the vaccination mandate, and many other things. So Jim, thank you so much for, for joining us today. My pleasure. And uh, Duncan Giles, always good to talk to you, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks, Larry. Thank you, Larry. This is uh, the Chapter 49 podcast. Uh, Again, it's weekly, as weekly as we can make it. Uh, If you uh, like this podcast, please uh, don't be afraid to let other people know about it. We are available on just about every podcast platform. Just uh, search under podcasts by Larry Lannan, L-A-N-N-A-N, and you'll find my podcast. I produce a number of them. Just look for the Chapter 49 podcast. We're also on YouTube. Just look up Duncan Giles and his uh, YouTube channel. You can uh, you can uh, subscribe to that, and you'll receive all of our Chapter 49 podcasts. So thank you for listening. Be safe and be kind.